0: Hi everybody! Thank you all again for uh, for those who have been watching, or are still watching now. Uh, today I have uh, uh, a very special person, like everybody who I'm inv- inviting is, in my estimation, a very special person. But the person in, in in particular is someone who I have a lot of admiration for. I'm very honored to have him here right here. And uh, I do want to say in advance that this topic will be a little bit on the more advanced side. Uh, so pardon us if there are some Terminologies used that are outside of the reach, but there's all channels about edification. So we're asking our, uh, our audience to uh, to step up their game also a bit. Um, uh, the, the point that we are going to address, of course, as you can see, is uh, uh, the essence energies distinction, which is a very neglected doctrine. And it's a very uh, fruitful one once it's understood correctly. Uh, when we, as athe- when we as theists argue with atheists, for instance, about uh, the column cosmological argument or the theological argument, uh, those are arguments that go from uh, physics to metaphysics. And the person right here in particular has uh, a, a great love for metaphysical um, philosophy and for uh, historicity. Uh, Brother David, uh, David Bratchett, Dr. David Bratchett, Thank you for being here, and I'm delighted to
1: have you here. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Good
0: to join. Great, thank you. Um, just to start, start off first, could you tell us something about yourself, of uh, where you came from, your progression as uh, a as Christian towards Orthodoxy, and why your love for, for this topic in particular?
1: Okay, uh, well, I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Kentucky in the United States. Um, I was trained in ancient Greek philosophy, particularly. And the book you just held up, uh, Aristotle East and West, um, has the subtitle, Metaphysics and the Division of Christendom. That really began as my dissertation. What I wanted to do was uh, trace the concept of energia. That's the Greek word. It's the source of our English word energy. And what I was aware of was sort of the two ends of its trajectory. On the one hand, um, it's a word coined by Aristotle. And in Aristotle, it's usually not translated as energy, it's translated as either activity or actuality, uh, sort of in correlation with potentiality or dunamis. And it's a very important term for Aristotle. It's one that he uses All over the place in his physics, his metaphysics, the et etc. And then I was aware that in the Greek church fathers, and particularly St. Gregory Palamas, who's a fairly late author in the 14th century in Byzantium, um, it's used, yeah, thanks, it's used uh, in a way that people do translate it as energy and refer to the divine energies, uh, or sometimes it's in the singular divine energy. And I wasn't real sure how did it get from point A to point B, how did it get from what it meant in, originally in Aristotle to what it ultimately meant in the, in the church fathers. And, you know, as part of that, uh, hoping to get a better understanding of what this whole concept of divine energy actually means. Um, so anyway, that's what I did for my dissertation and then I added some material to it. And that's the book, um, that you mentioned, um, When I wrote that, I already was orthodox. I've been orthodox a long time. I converted back in 1982. Um, I was a college student back then, and uh, I'd been raised a Protestant, but didn't really have any strong church affiliation. And when I began uh, learning about church history, and particularly uh, the whole period of the seven ecumenical councils, which as a Protestant, you don't hear very much about, but I came to really appreciate the continuity uh, of Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church, of course, it wasn't even called that at that time, right? It was just the church, the one holy Catholic apostolic church, as it existed in the eastern half of the Mediterranean Empire, where the Roman Empire never fell and uh, never went through a kind of a dark ages, much less a reformation or anything like that. So there's just been a a very strong continuity of the Christian faith in that part of the world for now over 2000 years. And, you know, as a Protestant, what I really wanted was to join or to belong to the church of the apostles or to the uh, uh, apostolic faith. And I've concluded that orthodoxy really is that. So anyway, that's what kind of led me to this interest I have in the church fathers, especially the Greek church fathers.
0: Uh, I remember that you once said that the first time that you went to an orthodox church, it wasn't love at first sight.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, True. (laughs) Well, it was all in Greek, or mostly in Greek, and I didn't know any Greek, um, and so it was just very foreign. I, I'd actually never been to a church where the priest had his back to the congregation, uh, which, of course, is very traditional, and even Catholic, you know, and or even Anglicans sometimes will do that, uh, but I'd not seen it before. So that all that alone was sort of um, unsettling and confusing. Um, but on the other hand, it was beautiful, you know, and I could recognize the beauty, even though it was alien to me. And so I did want to learn more. And, and over time, I did.
0: Great. Yeah. That's that's an, uh, the conversion stories or uh, entire topics, you know, themselves, of course. Amazing to hear. Uh, but of course, I've read your book. And as you can see, I have like a lot of lips here uh, for the wow. past couple of weeks. Yeah. It, it is one of those, it's a hefty book. Because you really need to focus, and this one you've you wrote this one in 2004. Do I remember correct? Yes. 2004, Right. Yeah. And um, like we and we as Christians are discussing uh, topics like these, and uh, when the claim is that that what God is and what God does, when we are discussing the Trinity, for instance, there is this dichotomy of like uh, what God is in his essence and how he holds like the creation of of, of the creation in his under his control of his providence, and of course, like Aristotle uh, and Plotinus and Plato, all of them, they also use particular type of language which the Church Fathers used in order to explicate them. But then the the the, uh, the allegations come like from oh that that was taken from them, let taken from them. And what you've done very well, especially in the first half of the book, is to etymologically outsource how they use the, their words and how the Church Fathers are using those words. So like mm-hmm. the logos in, in the prologue of John is not the same as the, the logos in the meditations of Mark Aurelius, for mm-hmm. instance. So that's a very, uh, very great research of, that you've done. Um, but coming to the point, um, uh, what is the essence energies distinction? What what can we Christians understand by that?
1: Well, um, you know, I think the place to start is in the new Testament. and, uh, to realize that the word energy, uh, the Greek term energia, is one that's actually pretty prominent in the New Testament. Uh, that word, along with the corresponding verb energain, uh, appear about two dozen times, and particularly in St. Paul. St. Paul really kind of appropriates that word group and makes it, uh, in my opinion, part of his almost technical vocabulary. Um, and he does use it in a way that I think Morris kind of focuses it more on God and the activity of God than other authors had before him. So just to kind of explain or give the background there, I mentioned in Aristotle that the word energia originally meant activity. And in that sense of activity, it became a common term in ancient Greek. Um, and you can talk about the energia, the activity of a, of a human being, or even of, an, of say fire, water or an animal or an an organ of the body. Um, And so sometimes it could also mean something like operation or function or the way something characteristically works. Um, What's really distinctive is when you take that term and then use it in reference to God and God's activity, because God is unlike any uh, creature, at least certainly any creature that we're familiar with, uh, when he acts in someone else. He, he can energize and sort of vivify that creature in whom he's acting. And that's why I think this term appeals to St. Paul because it becomes for him a way of describing God's activity uh, in him, uh, in his own life and also in the church. Um, so one of my favorite passages where you see this is Colossians 129, uh, where St. Paul is referring to his own ministry and he refers to the then the energia of God that is being an that it, he uses the verb now in the passive form, being activated or, or realized within me, within Paul, in his ministry. And uh, so it's God's energy that's being made real and effective within him. And what he's describing then is that it's not just the case that he sort of receives a commandment from God and then sort of independently executes what he's been commanded to do. It's that God gives him the power and the energy to do what he does. And of course, his whole ministry, I think, illustrates that. Um, and uh, kind of along those lines, then in, in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about the gifts of the spirit, he uses the same word or word group. Uh, in this case, the verb energain, that it's the Holy Spirit that is performing, performing, uh, realizing, making effective these gifts of the spirit. And he refers to the gifts themselves as energemata which again is part of the same word group, things done or performed by the spirit. And so the gifts like prophecy and healing um, are uh, just like Paul was referring to in his ministry, they're ways in which God is actively present in someone uh, to work out his will. And it's a matter of cooperation. you know that person in whom he's present, <clears throat> excuse me an active isn't like a puppet, right? Uh, Paul wasn't a puppet in his ministry. He was someone who was freely cooperating with God. So you have the divine energy uh, present and active in a human being and that human being then sort of embraces and receives that energy and cooperates with it. and that's what uh, the fathers refer to as synergy. Um, which you can translate as cooperation, but you just have to be aware it's not talking about two independent beings. Like if you and I were to cooperate, like we're doing now with this interview, it's much more intimate than that because in synergy, in this sense, God is the one who's making the activity possible and the, the creature Paul or whoever receives the spiritual gifts his contribution is simply to embrace and, and, and you know, and sort of uh, accept what the gift that God is giving him and then act in accordance with it. Um, and that I think for Paul is sort of, I mean, the whole Christian life is like that. Um, and of course he also refers uses other words like grace chorus, you know, and uh, if you think about first Corinthians 12, what that's really saying is that the grace of the spirit is a form of divine energy that is active and present in us. Um, So that's where the whole concept of divine energy comes from. It's actually in the New Testament. Uh, People, we tend not to realize it if you're reading the New Testament in translation, because uh, there's sort of a linguistic history here that comes into play. The fact that the Vulgate, the translation into Latin, uh, in Latin, you don't really have a word that has all the connotations and resonances of, of this word group in, in Greek, uh, the close you ha- closest you have is operatio, you know, the source of our English word operation. Uh, the trouble is that the verb that corresponds to that is operatur, which is what's called a deponent verb. That means it's um, passive in form, but active in meaning. Or to put that another way, it doesn't really have a separate passive uh, voice. Um, You can only use that verb in the active voice, essentially. And so what happens when when you try to translate what Paul is saying in Greek, where there's a clear distinction between the active and the passive voice of the verb, it just gets blurred over. And all the places that that Paul refers to the energy being realized and made active and manifest um, are sort of washed out. And there are other issues in the Vulgate, they actually use that same word to translate other terms as well. So when you read the Vulgate, you just don't realize how important this word group is for Paul and what it actually means and the way that he's using it. Um, and later, modern translations still kind of continue in that. They're all sort of, I think, working in that groove laid down by the Vulgate, including the, like the King James and the revised standard and so on in English. They usually translate energia as operation or working, uh, very rarely as energy. But um, unless you think of energy and an energy that's being realized and made effective, then I think you're just going to miss a lot of what he's actually saying. Wow, that's
0: just a, that's a jaw dropping summation of what you just gave. Like I, I had like uh the feeling of that went that way, but the way you explicated and the verse that you gave to us just like was like amazing to hear. So, thank you, Dr. B- Dr. Bradshaw. Um, uh, my next question uh, is uh, What can we understand under the term divine simplicity? What would that be? Yeah,
1: divine simplicity is a very traditional theological doctrine. It goes back to the church fathers, it's the idea that God is simple. Um, the tricky part is simple in what way? Uh, simplicity isn't simple, <laughs> okay? Um, there have been many books written about what does it mean to be simple, especially for God to be simple. I mean, there are some things that are obvious. God is not a material being, so he doesn't have physical parts. Um, going a little further than that, um, if you think in Aristotelian terms of matter and form, um, You know, So the church fathers would have said that even the angels have matter and form because they're spiritual beings, yes, but spirit, as in the case of the angels, as they saw it, is sort of like a more rarefied form of matter. And that's something you can find in church fathers like, say, St. John of Damascus, that there are different grades of materiality. And so the angels are sort of immaterial compared to us, but they're material compared to God because after all they have, you know, each angel has a specific location where he is at a particular place and time. So that's a kind of a form of materiality. Well, so anything that has any kind of matter, even in the most rarefied way is still a composition of matter and form. Okay, matter that receives the form and the form is what makes the thing to be what it is. Uh, it, It constitutes the definition or the essence in Aristotelian terms. Um, except God. I mean, God is not a composition of, of matter and form um, because he's wholly immaterial and he's the creator of matter as well as form. So uh, that's another way in which he's simple. He sort of transcends that dichotomy or that distinction. Um, so kind of go along with that. Another way is that any, anything else, any creature, at least in Aristotelian terms, belongs to some species. That is, in turn, a member of some other genus, etc., like human being, you know, rational animal. So we belong to the genus of animal, which belongs to the genus of living thing, uh, belongs to the genus of material entity, and so on. Um, but again, that's not true of God. You can't uh, understand God in terms of genus and differentia, which is the classic Aristotelian way of giving a definition. So all of that, I think, is. Pretty straightforward. And um, now here's one more that maybe is a little less obvious, but it is also something uh, important, and all the church fathers would have agreed on this um, that God doesn't participate in anything else in order to be what he is. Okay, that any creature who's living like we are, we participate in life. You might say life with a capital L. And of course, if you're a Christian, you believe that that life that we participate in that enables us to live is God. That in fact, you know, that's one of the terms Christ applies to himself right in the gospel of John. So uh, the church Fathers sort of took that and they read it in this sort of metaphysical sense that, well, God is life itself. God is being itself. God is wisdom itself. God is reason itself. God is power itself and any creature that has those attributes has it by, in some way, participating in what God is. But at the same time, you know, sort of the converse of that is that because God is those things, he doesn't have to acquire them by participation the way that we do as creatures. He's not dependent on anything else for his being and his life and his wisdom and his power. Uh, these are intrinsic uh perfections or attributes or whatever term you want to use, but they're aspects of what he is intrinsically uh, prior to any kind of a relationship he might have to anything else. Okay, and that can't be said for any creature. Again, even an angel only has life and power and wisdom because it receives them from something external, namely God. Um, So anyway, so that's another aspect of this traditional idea of divine simplicity that God um, doesn't receive any of his attributes by participation. Um, and as I said that that's all something that both the Eastern and the Western Church would totally agree on. Um, the only reason this really becomes controversial is that Saint Augustine in uh, you know late fourth early fifth century, um, he agrees with everything I just said, but he also um, in the confessions, He, you know, you kind of have to read the whole story of his conversion, his intellectual process, and particularly what he describes in book seven of the Confessions, how he had been a Manichaean, and the Manichaeans were a a kind of materialist in a broad sense. They believe that both good, that is God, and also evil, are forms of matter that somehow are sort of dispersed and present throughout the universe, and um, You know, so Augustine in book seven of the confessions describes how he wrestled with this. And for him, it was very hard to conceive of how anything could exist that isn't material. And then um, he describes, I think this is chapter 10, how reading Exodus chapter three, you know, the revelation of God to Moses from the burning bush. When God says, I am he who is, then it kind of just hit him like a load of bricks that God is beyond materiality. And when God says, I am he who is, he's essentially identifying himself with being itself that isn't purely material because there are things such as truth that are not material. And he mentions that in that chapter as well, that God is no more located to a particular place in time than truth itself is. And so... I it, kind of reacting against that, or, or in the sort of, you might say, the zeal to reject his former materialism and his former sort of degraded concept of God that identified God with a kind of matter. He then wants to go to the opposite extreme and say that, um, uh, how should I put it, that God's essence is everything that he is, um, or Maybe I should put it the other way. Everything that God is in his own nature, it belongs to his essence, is his essence, and there's nothing else in God. Of course, the Latin word essentia, uh, that's the one I'm using here for essence. Um, now, why would that be problematic? Well, there's a there's an issue here um, that Augustine, because I think he he read Latin and didn't really read Greek, at least till late in his life, was, probably wasn't aware of. But already by the time he was writing, earlier fathers like St. Athanasius had drawn a distinction and said, well, we have to distinguish God's nature or, or essence on the one hand from his will on the other, because there's some things he does by nature and other things he does by will. Uh, in particular, this comes up in the Arian controversy, and it's, it's sort of toward the end of book three of Athanasius's work against the Arians, he says, when the father begets the son, that's that's an act of nature, that there's no way the father could not beget the son, because the son is co-eternal and co-equal with the father. And so there was no act of choice involved in his doing that. Uh, That's not to say that it was involuntary either. I mean, it's not like he, if he did choose, so that he would say no, right? But it's just that it wasn't a voluntary act at all. It was something occurring by nature, just like for God to be good or to be wise also are by nature. Um, Whereas he says, when God created the world, that was an act of will and he did choose. So because of that, God's nature or essence on the one hand and his will on the other are not the same thing. Now, obviously they're very closely connected. His will is an aspect of his nature. And what he does by will, somehow you might say, expresses and manifests his nature. That's all true. But we can't just equate them as if they're the same thing. And Augustine does equate them. Uh, Actually, in in the Confessions, I think uh, there are actually a couple of points. uh, One in, trying to remember now, I want to say book 10, maybe one in book 12, where he says that, yeah, God's essence and his will are one and the same thing. And that's very problematic. What that ends up doing is undercutting the grounds for divine freedom. Because if God's will is just another way of sort of naming or describing the divine essence, then you have this problem that, well, the divine essence could not be any different than it is. God is an, an eternal and necessary being. And so wouldn't that imply the same thing about his will? That his will cannot be anything different than it is. And that, of course, is the very reason that Athanasius had distinguished them. (laughs) It's a real shame, I think, that Augustine didn't have access to that work, uh, had not been translated into Latin. And uh, that later authors in the West, Western Christianity, also didn't have access to it because they only read Latin, they didn't read Greek. And they kind of read the works of Augustine and took that, that as their basis for their theology all through the Middle Ages. He was by far the most preeminent father and, and theological authority, and the works of other fathers like Athanasius and uh, the Cappadocians, like Saint Basil and Saint Gregory Nazianzen, etc., mostly were never had not been translated uh, and never were translated until the Renaissance. So the, the people in the West just didn't have access to the sources where some of these issues had been worked out. Um, and so anyway, that's the one way in which divine simplicity can become problematic is if you take it to that extreme and say that the divine essence and attributes, or in particular, the will, divine will, are identical. Okay. And that's something that you only find in Western Christianity, but not in Eastern Christianity.
0: So, so later on, we will also touch on the Thomistic Uh, principle of actus purus which we will come into uh, later on in the session Uh, but what I would like to ask is that uh, what can we understand of what Aristotle's concept of the prime mover so like uh, there is I don't know what your thoughts on on special revelation and generic revelation like natural theology like Mm -hmm. my personal conviction correct me if I'm wrong of course you are more prolific in this field than I am uh, is that human beings do have uh, the laws written on their hearts, as Paul says in Romans 2 and in, in Ezekiel 36, that we have general revelation, but there's distinction of special revelation. My conviction is that Aristotle, all of those people, they did come to a certain level, but then are like, like parallels, parallelly speaking, like the, the biblical revelations also came with it. And, for, and there is a way of like to combine those two, like P- Plato, was uh, someone who a lot of church fathers refer to. Some concept that he has were also like biblically, uh, exegetically to, to prove. But what is your thought on the prime mover? You have a chapter on it in your book, but what mm-hmm. can you say about that?
1: Well, I think the prime mover is a good example of how uh, a wise pagan like, like Aristotle could come to um, a great deal of awareness that there is a God And that God is the ultimate source of all things, and that God is to be revered and sought, you might, to the best of our ability, um, without, as you mentioned, having access, of course, to the special revelation that comes through the scripture and, and especially through Jesus Christ. And so, Uh, he was able to reach a certain level of knowledge and that included this awareness of God um, that he called the prime mover. And he used that term because uh, in book eight of the physics, he gives an argument for there must be some unmoved mover. That's the cause of all other motion. Um, Yeah. So um, I guess chapter two of my book would be all about this. Yeah. Yeah. and so that first cause of all motion is what he calls then the prime mover. And in the metaphysics, uh, book 12 of the metaphysics, he kind of comes back to the subject and he adds a lot more about the prime mover. And it's really there where he identifies it with God. And he says something that was very influential and uh, kind of uh, thought provoking that um, the prime mover is intellect. Okay, nous is n o u s. That's the Greek word, um, and it thinks all the for all eternity, not in the way that you and I think, where we reason something out sequentially, step by step, and it's a what people call a discursive reason. Um, the prime mover already from all eternity, you might say, knows all that can be known, and his thinking is just the full active understanding and contemplation of all eternal and necessary truths. Um, Now you might say, well, wait a minute, what about the truth that like you and I are talking together right now? Uh, That would not be included because that's something that's transitory. And Aristotle, when he thinks of what knowledge is for him knowledge episteme in Greek is primarily knowledge of eternal and necessary truths. But all of, the, all of those, and you know that would include many truths about the natural world and the cosmos and so forth. Because for Aristotle, the cosmos itself is eternal and necessary. It's always existent. Um, all of those would be embraced within the thinking of the prime mover. But now one more detail or one more wrinkle to add to that, it's not like you and I where we think about things not, not only sequentially, but also we have different ideas. So you know when I think of, Uh, uh, like say a triangle and all that I know about triangles. Well, I've got the idea of a triangle and then I kind of add to it. Yeah, the angles add up to 180 degrees. And if you draw a segment from one apex to the other side, then it will uh, make two right angles, you know, where it hits the other side, et cetera. I mean, these little facts I know about triangles. And for me, those are separate facts. Um, for the prime mover, everything he knows, he understands all at once in a single act of thought. Um, it's, a, it's a state that you and I could not possibly really conceive or, or you know, be, like, be in ourselves. But for Aristotle, that's the eternal state of God. And uh, one reason this is important is that um, Christian authors, uh, especially the, the scholastics in the Middle Ages, but even before that, um, found this very impressive. And to some extent they agreed with that. You know, They agreed to the extent of saying that God doesn't have to learn things piecemeal uh, bit by bit. And he certainly doesn't have to figure things out bit by bit the way that we do. So they liked that idea of the, what's called the self-thinking thought, uh, this thought that embraces all intelligible reality in a single act. And they thought that was, Um, a helpful way of thinking about God's thought, divine thought. Um, It does have, though, I mean, you know, maybe this is going to be your next question, but there are issues with the prime mover that make it not suitable altogether for being a Christian model of God. And of course, it wasn't intended to be, right? Aristotle wasn't trying to, uh, for, for one thing, the prime mover, the way he describes it doesn't act in history. It doesn't ever perform a miracle. It doesn't ever issue a command. It doesn't really care or have any knowledge of what you and I as individuals are doing. Uh, so there's no sense of divine providence acting upon individuals, much less a kind of a call and a relationship, like you know, God in the Bible has with, say, with Abraham and with many others. Um, so for God For Aristotle the prime mover is a metaphysical first principle and there are some aspects of what he says that may be helpful for theology but at the same time if you make that your you know sort of your all-encompassing system then it's it's going to be very problematic
0: yeah um, so, so it's like a crutch it's, it's not the, it's not the big it's not the whole deal but it helps
1: yeah. yeah yeah it's a it's a nice starting point but you have to be able willing to correct it. Uh, in, you know, robustly, you might say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: Uh, well put. Um, My next
0: question, Uh, what is the logos and logi distinction, the second person in Trinity and this concept that Maximus the Confessor explicated? What can we understand by those two?
1: Yeah, this gets back a little bit to divine simplicity. Um, So the logos, of course, uh, in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And so the Logos, uh, the second person, the Trinity, um, and that, you know, in, in Greek at that time would have been understood to mean uh, spoken word, spoken discourse, really. Uh, and then also the mind, the reason that utters that discourse. So Logos is both reason and word or discourse. Um, St. Maximus, um, he's a church father of the seventh century. Um, He takes this idea and he applies it to the act of creation in a very interesting way, because uh, for St. Maximus, everything that God creates, he does so by, you might say, uttering a word. Of course, this goes back to Genesis 1. God creates by speaking But he kind of takes that a little further and says, so uh, there's a word that God uttered when he made you. And another word when he made me. And that word that he utters, um, in a sense, sort of embraces everything that we are or or ever could be. Uh, It's what he intends in creating each of us. So that word contains our purpose and our destiny. Um, the only proviso is that since we have free will, we're unlike other creatures, we don't necessarily just become what God intends us to be. We can resist and we can uh, fall short in all kinds of ways. And so he distinguishes um, three things that were kind of three phases or, or of the logos that God utters for each creature. There's the logos of being, that calls it into being, creates it initially, then there's the logos of ever well-being that defines its ultimate goal and purpose. Um, And for us as rational beings, that would be eternal communion with God. And in between the two, there's what he calls the logos of well-being that's sort of meant to link them together and to lead you from simple being to eternal well-being, that intermediate logos of well-being. The thing is that that logos of well-being only comes about through our cooperation and this is where it comes back to synergy you know like with saint paul mm-hmm. that god is continually active in us um one sort of lead, seeking to lead us to realize that logos of well-being that is part of our purpose but uh it's up to us to cooperate it's, it and sounds it sounds a lot like theosis it is right? that's, it is theosis when it, when that would it be really the is. ever well-being that's yeah. theosis yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what god intends for us um but we may or may not i'd say respond to that call so yeah. uh anyway this i'm getting a little off topic but anyway that's just to explain what the, the, the logoi are um they're the individual words that god utters in creating each individual thing and they they contain his intent and his purpose as creator. Um, And what is the relation between them then and the one logos? Well, St. Maximus says that you could look at it one way, apophatically, uh, excuse me, cataphatically, rather in terms of affirmation, you know, cataphatic is uh, affirmatively. And uh, you could say that the one logos is the many logoi. Okay, yeah. in other words, that the one logos embraces all the, all the individual logo, all the individual words that God uttered in creating the world. All of them together, if you sort of do that integral over all of time from beginning to end, you have the one logos. Um, but that's only one way of looking because he says, cat, uh, excuse me, apophatically considered in terms of, of the denial, You know, God has to always be described both ways cataphatically in terms of what he is, but then apophatically in terms of what he is not so that we don't ever confuse our human language and descriptions with the reality of God that's so much higher than anything we can utter or conceive. So he says, apophatically considered, the one logos transcends the many logos. Um, And so you can't actually reduce the logos, the word of God, to creation, or all the words that are uttered in in creating creatures, Uh, not even all of them together. And of course that stands to reason, right? Because the logos would exist even if God had never created the world. It's not simply contained within um, the word that he utters in creating, but that created word does express and manifest the one logos. Um, and so that's what kind of, what the way he's thinking of it is that the many logoi are the individual manifestations and, and particular ways of being present in different creatures of the one logos. All right. Um, and this is actually really important for say Maximus and other fathers, because they think, um, there's something called natural contemplation, Physique Theoria, where, um, when this when the soul is purified okay and we're no longer governed by the passions but the senses are have sort of been purified at the point of you might say seeing the world the, the way that god sees it um then you're able to 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 see and to hear the logoi that are in creatures um and that's what he calls physical contemplation that's seeing nature and seeing God's presence within nature and not only his presence but his purpose and his activity um, leading things to to fulfill their purpose uh, that he gave them. so that's a form of contemplating God's work you know and God's grandeur Hmm. and beauty Um, so uh, there's a whole you know just further discussion we could have about that but yeah that's kind of the basic idea Sure.
0: Now, th- that was an, an amazing explanation because that reminds me a lot of, of Jordan Peterson. He, for instance, says a lot that, that, that uh, there's a, a spark of divinity in everything of us. And I think that he he uses the word logos a lot and foul logo centric and he's wrestling a lot with that, with this topic. I think that when he would have mm-hmm. a conversation with you, then a lot of things would click. And I, I really do believe that once he gets into Palamas, Maximus the Confessor, like so many doors would burst open for him. Yeah, it it is. That would be amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He said he's on the edge. Um, My Mm -hmm. next question, Uh, how can creatures experience uncreated energies like Paul did on the road of Damascus, the apostles did at the Mount of Transfiguration or when Daniel, when he saw the ancient of days. So what happens there? What would you say about that?
1: Well, um, Mm -hmm the form of the energy of God that's um, available to us, you know, as Christians are uh, the gifts of the spirit or, you know, including I'm, I'm including within that, the fruit of the spirit. Um, Cause even if you look at that passage in first Corinthians 12, where he's describing the gifts, he includes things like uh, faith and wisdom. Uh, I think he calls it the word of wisdom. And other traits that are not necessarily sort of like, you know, a gift of healing or a gift of speaking in tongues, they're these fruit of the spirit that um, are simply the virtues of the Christian life that are made possible through the active presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, For the fathers, that's a form of divine energy. So anytime you have faith and anytime you Uh, you might say, speak the word of wisdom, you know, in other words, following the scriptures and uh, really living in accordance with that. I mean, obviously it's not enough just to be up here, right? Wisdom is, it's not just a a matter of what you know, it's a matter of how you live and who you are. Um, But those are ways of participating in the divine energy. Now, um, I should add to that, that they're, they're only the beginning. Okay. (laughs) And this is something that, Uh, you really have to kind of get into the church fathers and read authors like Gregory Palamas that we mentioned earlier to, to really kind of begin to get your mind around this. Um, What Palamas describes is how um, the monks of Mount Athos at that time. And Mm -hmm. I know, you know, but some of your viewers may not know that Mount Athos is the great monastic Republic um, that's in Northern Greece. And, There are many monasteries, there are many Orthodox monasteries, and and it's been there for over a thousand years. Uh, That's where Gregory Palamas was. And the monks there practiced a form of prayer called the prayer of the heart um, that consisted simply in sort of turning, kind of kneeling over, looking toward the area of the heart and repeating uh, what's called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner and repeating this over and over and over many times. So that it almost becomes like, well, they, they use the term self-acting. It becomes like, it's always there in your mind. It's always what your mind is doing, even if you're doing other things along with it. Um, it really begins to sort of express the, the deepest reach of what you are in the at the deepest level of your heart. Uh, that's why it's called the prayer of the heart. It comes to dwell in the heart. Um, well, that some monks who had practiced that prayer as they were doing so, they beheld a kind of a light. And the question is, what was that light? Well, they, when they beheld it, they felt it as the presence of God. And of course, it was in a sense, an answer to this prayer they'd been praying to Jesus Christ. And so uh, Palamas wrote his work, The Triads, which you, you know is in the book you mentioned, um, to defend these monks and say, yes, this is a true Christian experience, this vision uh, of what they refer to as the uncreated light, that is a form of divine presence, or the way Palamas puts it, a form of the divine energy. And he uh, equated it or identified it with the light that shone around Christ at the transfiguration. Yeah. Okay. And there are also other instances of this, like, you know, the the face of St. Stephen, Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7, when he's killed, his face shines with this radiant light. Uh, And so did the face of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. So there's biblical evidence of this, that um, that can be one effect of a very close, intimate communion with God. And so um, that would be, in a sense, a sort of a further level of participating in the divine energy to behold the uncreated light. And sometimes when people do this, they themselves come to shine with that light the way that Stephen did and Moses did. Um, So that comes through prayer and through living the whole Christian life. And um, I think at least in the, far as I'm aware, it's most often been a gift given to those who practice the Jesus prayer I don't think it's necessarily limited to that because God can do what he wishes to do. Right. Um, but uh, clearly it, it's something that only comes through great obedience and um, strictness of prayer and, and, sort of devotion to God. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there can be different forms that that could take, you know, uh, participating in the divine energy. I think for us, you know, the answer to your question is, well, where do we begin? We begin with prayer and obedience and, um, And doing the things that St. Paul talks about and the things that the Lord himself talks about. Um, And the thing to realize is that when we do those, because of the synergy, because we're actively cooperating with God, we're not just sort of doing what we're told. We're we're gaining access to God's own being in the way that he wants to share it with us through the divine energy.
0: Yeah, I'm getting shivers when I'm... uh... Addressing this topic because this is it, not only it, it sounds a lot like uh, the doors already open, you just have to walk through it. Oh, it's a great dog back there. Mm-hmm. Um, there you go. Um, but, um, uh, the, the, the thing I want to tie this one into is uh, my next question, uh, Exodus 33, verse 23. We, you, you are using that verse a lot in your book, and for a good mm-hmm. reason. Uh, what I want to ask you particularly is that uh, God says, for instance, that, that God is too holy for us, like that we will be able to, we will be vapored in a second when he, when he is in his full glory. But is, does it actually imply that in that verse particularly, he says that you won't see my face, that you will see my back? What does that actually mean? That when, when, uh, when God is working in our hearts, as in 1 uh, Corinthians 12 already says, does that actually mean that he is dimming down his glory in order for us to
1: experience him? How would you, how would you explain that? Uh, well, yeah, so that verse in Exodus, um, that's sort of the climax of this episode where you know Moses in the darkness on Mount Sinai, he pleads with God, show me your glory. And God says to him, no one can see my face and live, but I'll put you here in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by, and you shall see my backside, um, but not my face. Okay. And so it looks like from that passage that, in a sense, the divine glory is God's backside. And the church fathers, when they read that, like St. Gregory Nazianzen in particular, has a passage about this. So he says, yeah, the, uh, the backside represents here. God's glory as it reaches us through creation, Um, the glory of God that's evident in the world around us. Kind of, you know, in a way echoing what St. Paul says in Romans one about how the invisible things of God are manifest from the things that are made. Um, Whereas the face that would represent God's essence or nature in itself, which no man can see and live. That's that's beyond human knowledge or comprehension. Um, and not only human knowledge, but even the knowledge of the angels. Um, that, you know, for them, this is simply a fundamental feature of the distinction between the creature and the creator, that God, because he is infinite and the source of all things, uh, no creature could ever embrace all that he is in a single act of knowing, okay? Um, so... That's how he take how he interprets that episode in Exodus 33 is sort of symbolic of this. Um, um, I was going to add to that, though something else you said and I've forgotten now about the divine glory. Oh yeah, you're asking about, well, does God kind of dial it down? Um, not exactly, I would put it a, a little differently that he, if you think of how God's glory is present through all of creation, um, it's present in many, many ways that you and I, can't even begin to understand. Um, It's sort of like the way that our eyes are able to pick up just a tiny fraction of the whole electromagnetic spectrum, you know, 0.4 to 0.7 angstroms. That's it for us. And the electromagnetic spectrum goes goes all the way from X-ray to radio wave and everything in between. So um, God's glory in creation is sort of like that. It's present in so many ways that we, we can only perceive the tiniest little drop, Um, but it's up to us to grow. And uh, of course, it's not just scientific knowledge I have in mind here, it's spiritual understanding and spiritual growth that enable you to recognize God's glory in new ways and to kind of respond to it and to live in light of it. Um, So it's not the glory of God that changes. And actually, so the fathers, when they talk about the transfiguration, of Christ, they say something interesting they say that um christ didn't change he always has that glory and he always did that's his eternal glory um what happened was that the thing that changed was that the eyes of the disciples uh peter james and john were opened oh, yeah. so that they were able to see what has always been there um yeah so that's what we should see Ooh, i tomorrow. got
0: shivers i got shivers <laughs> yeah, continue yeah
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that's why you know I mentioned, mentioned Gregory Palamas. That's for him. That is the uncreated light. Uh, and it says in First John, God is light. Right. God has this radiant light that is always with him. Or, or, or John eight verse twelve. I am the light of the world. Yeah. Or, or in the prologue also. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of my favorites. I have a special, special place in my heart of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, like Matthew. 17, Luke 9, Mark 9, 1 Peter 2, 16 to 17, when he just starts to give light. I've always figured, trying to figure out what that meant, but there's, but there's also something about uh, um, that light is his essence. So it just like boggles my mind, but uh, th- there is another question popped up in my mind. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned, for instance, that God is always there, but we humans with our uh, noetic empirical data that we have there's only so much that we can uh, perceptually detect right so mm-hmm. yeah the, the, the thing the thing is like um, I from a young kid I always respected the fact that I didn't know everything like uh, when I heard for instance um, uh, first belief then see like that was something that was push a lot but I then realized that there's so much more out there that we don't know like we can hear from 20 hertz to twenty thousand hertz dogs can hear even above that and bats can even hear above that you name it mm-hmm. you name it so there are some things out there that we are not able to comprehend so the apophatical part of god it's it's, it's it must be respected
1: and, and especially in this one absolutely i mean modern astronomy uh, i think is wonderful in this way that it's kind of opening our eyes to what the world, how much there is in the cosmos, if you see it through X-rays or through radio waves and different forms of um, transmission. So, you know, like that uh, Hubble, not the Hubble, but the uh, the web telescope that's just been launched mm-hmm. uh, that they're hoping can see to the farthest edge of the cosmos that's going to be permitted by the laws of physics. Um, you know that's just and you think i mean if we if we can if the human race survives another 100 years or another thousand years how much more we'll keep learning how much the, the creative world is going to keep unfolding its its riches to us and i don't think there will ever be an end to that um mm, i agree the, yeah yeah it makes you it makes you feel like a
0: maggot and in some hmm. sense we are <laughs> but that's we're, the whole we're. but that's the whole thing yeah. the humility like uh, mm-hmm. we should order. We should actually be more in awe of the unknowability of God. I think it's amazing that we don't know, but we know that he, as, as the, the the example that you just gave, the prime mover versus the God of the Bible, they have somewhat the same foundations, part my language, but the other one is not personal. The other one did not enter the creation. The other one is not someone that you can have a relationship right. with, or if, especially in uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, it's like encouraging us to, know him or uh, hosea 4 for 6 says that my people are shall be destroyed for a lack of knowledge so is this is this curiosity about knowing who god is it just makes christianity and orthodoxy is amazing mm-hmm. um i want to um go to uh the thomistic concept of actus purus because when i read your book and i do have like uh, a couple of discussions with theists from other religions and uh, a very dis- uh, uh, interesting disputational point is how God is according with his creation and uh, our beliefs that God is separated from his creation but it still has like the providence over it but there are uh, um, people who are referring to Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas uh, and, and the, the, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas that God is pure act, acts purus, and it's like somewhat synonymous with his creation uh that does give like if you follow that that if you follow that sure that just leads towards pantheism right so what would you say to that if you hear that
1: yeah well so actus purus is a kind of a latin rendering of something that aristotle does say about the prime mover that his essence is energy his in Greek it's ousia, ousia is, usia is anergia. Um, so he is nothing but activity, um, self-subsistent activity, right? Not the activity of some other separate thing, but a kind of self-subsistent activity that's eternal and always fully actual, okay? Never transitioning or developing uh, from one stage to another. It's always forever been fully what it is and what it it will be. And that goes back to that whole concept of self-thinking thought I mentioned earlier that the prime mover from all eternity just is this act of self-thinking thought of of the divine mind knowing, comprehending all possible knowledge. Um, So that's I think very consistent for Aristotle to say that God is pure act in that sense. Uh, Pure Energia, uh, in that sense. Um, It's a little more problematic if you're a Christian. And now Aquinas, of course, he's a Christian, but he is writing um, in a time and a place when Aristotle sort of represents the summit of human wisdom. And he wants to show that Aristotle is totally congruent with the Christian faith. And uh, wherever possible, Aquinas is going to kind of make Aristotle his starting point. And then try to sort of add to that or enrich it somehow to make it a a Christian presentation of God. So he also adopts this notion that God is pure act. Um, The question is, what exactly does that mean for Aquinas, given that as a Christian, his understanding of God has got to be very different from Aristotle's? Because if you're a Christian, you believe that God acts in time. God does something different today than he did yesterday and he'll do something different again tomorrow you know when he called abraham um he he did something new and unique in human history um and certainly even more when he became incarnate as jesus christ um and then you get the gifts of the spirit and so on i mean all of human history is the story of god acting and engaging in history in a way that aristotle's god never does um so I don't think the problem is so much pantheism as it is the restriction on what God can do and the restriction on divine freedom Um, because Aquinas, does pick up from Augustine that idea that God's attributes are identical to his essence, including the divine will is identical to the divine essence. And that I think in my opinion, that's where it gets really problematic. Um, and you hit this basic problem I mentioned earlier, well, but wait a minute, the will can be different, right? God chooses to do this and not that. Then how can that act of will be identical to the divine essence that's eternal and unchanging? Mm. Um, And Aquinas does recognize this issue. He he addresses it in several places. I think he just doesn't really have a very good answer to it. Um, And I do discuss that in my book in chapter 9. Um, and I kind of come back to it also in the epilogue. Mm. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's pantheistic because he he clearly, you know, he has a very strong sense of this distinction between creator and creature. Um, and he does affirm that God freely chooses to create the world. So that's something that, you know, all Christians, I think, agree on. Um, it's the only question is, is that really consistent with the things he says elsewhere about God as pure act? Um, and about divine simplicity. And that's where I think there's, uh, in my opinion, uh, a very major problem. So. Right. Yeah. No
0: that, that, that one um, answer to question, because there was something I was, I was thinking about a lot, because... Um, thank you for answering, Dr. Bradshaw. Um, uh, my next question, and I also think uh, would be even the last one, what were the pre and Nicene views on God's energies and which of the writings of the early church fathers formed the basis for his doctrine?
1: Well, okay. Yeah. That kind of uh, takes back to, takes us back to St. Paul and the impact that he had on the early Christian authors. Um, so in St. Paul, you know, it's very interesting that he only uses that word group of energia Energame, energamita, in reference to God or Christ or Satan as well, um, but some kind of supernatural agency that's active and present in us as human beings, um, whether for good in the case of God and Christ or for evil in the case of Satan. So there are a couple of passages in Second uh, Thessalonians uh, where he refers to the Antichrist as coming, who and this is Second Thess- 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 Thessalonians two nine, if anyone wants to look at it, who is coming after the working of Satan? Well, working is anergia, um, in accordance with the energy of Satan, uh, with all powers and signs and lying wonders, um, and also in Ephesians uh, two, uh, verse two he uh, refers to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, uh, anerguntos. okay, it's that same verb, in the children of disobedience. So Satan is working and active in the children of disobedience. And um, I think you cannot, you can not just working, he's imparting energy in the children of disobedience. He's enabling them to do what they do. Um, and that's that is the way that the early church fathers understood this, because when you come to the Christian authors of the second century, people like uh, Justin Martyr and mm-hmm. Athanagoras and others uh, of the group that are known as the Greek apologists, um, they use this word group, Energia and, and, and Energia. I- ironically,
0: today I was reading uh, Justin Martyr, so.
1: Yeah, he's great on this. Well, one thing, you know, to bear in mind about these early Christian authors they lived in a society where they saw the demonic every day. Um, you know, they walked out on the street and there at the corner was the great big temple to Artemis or Aphrodite or Ares, or Apollo. And um, they knew that those sacrifices offered to gods were being offered to demons. That's something that Saint Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten that we know that it's actually demons who receive these offerings, and that the things that the pagans did were often uh, prompted by demons. Um, and you know, there's a there's a book I like that um, brings this out really well. It's called uh, From Shame to Sin, by a classicist named Kyle Harper, um, and the the subtitle of it is um, The Transformation of sexual morality, I think in, in antiquity or something like that. But what he describes is how you know, we think of the gods as sort of beautiful and noble and fine. And that's, that's, there's truth to that. That's how they're represented in pagan art. But um, the pagan belief in the gods was really a belief in natural forces and impulses as things that are divine and therefore cannot ultimately be resisted all you can do is give in and cooperate in some way. And let's remember that Eros, E-R-O-S was a God. Uh, and so of course was Aphrodite, which is in Greek is kind of, the things of Aphrodite are, that's a euphemism for sex, okay? Well, in other words, uh, what he describes, he sort of describes how, you know, if you go to say the the murals at Pompeii, uh, you see this vividly that For the pagans, uh, the gods are very sexually licentious and that kind of licenses us, or even in a sense kind of commands us to be like them, to be that way too. And he describes how that affected all of ancient culture and really infected it with a kind of uh, licentiousness and um, I don't know what's the term, but uh, exploitation you know, because a big part of this too was the use of slaves, both young men and young women as prostitutes. Um, That was a big business in antiquity. It was totally legal. And a lot of slave owners made a lot of money by hiring out their slaves into these brothels. Uh, And there was a brothel on practically every corner. So anyway, the Christians saw this, they lived in that world. And to them, the pagan gods were Demons. Demons. Mm. Yes. And um, so when they read these passages in St. Paul, that has a really powerful, vivid meaning to them, that Satan is imparting energy in the children of disobedience. And so um, this word energia becomes almost like a technical term in early Christian literature for some kind of supernatural divine energy, which may be either from God the gifts of the spirit or it may be from Satan all right but, but but those
0: type of energies or quote miracles are not necessarily means that that is from God because uh do not marvel for even Satan can come as an angel of light Paul says in 2nd mm-hmm. Corinthians eleven fourteen, if I recall correctly so yeah. that energy as you mentioned before it's not an the word "concept fallacy" should not be put on that word. Put it just to God. It can also used to demons, as you mentioned before. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We still have this in English, by the way. If you uh, ever kind of start reading around in the occult, there's a word uh, uh, "energumenos" or "energumen." I guess it is in English um, for someone who's demonically possessed or somehow demonically inhabited. You might say. Well, that's from this verb energain. it's the passive form, the passive participle, someone who, uh, energuminos is someone who is being energized by a demonic power. Um, and that's, a, again, a technical term in the language but, of the church. But,
0: but, but there you see, again, how important uh, uh, sourcing out etymology actually is. That's why the first, you spend the first half of your book trying to source out how mm-hmm. those words were used, for instance. Like, if I can speak out of my own experience, uh, my conviction is that those who are multilingual, like, I can speak three languages fluently, but I can source out how when the word was used throughout time and what that means. Like, for instance, in Armenian, we say stomach. We hear stomach. We have hmm. here mortel. And here we have mortarary, for instance. So there are these words who are used from language to other language. And they have, like, of course, they have, like, this, evolution of meaning but it's still very effective to to look at how those words were used and the unfortunate side is that in this day and age we have the internet we god has blessed us with so many resources everybody can become a scholar uh, as a figure of speech of course but still the theological illiteracy is mind-boggling it's it's demonic as, as you could say that's why and, and the, the argumentation that they're using. So yeah, where does it say this word? So no, you don't get it. <laughs> etym- yeah. etym- etymology is a very underestimated uh, subject if it comes to these types of discussions. Would you not agree? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, I envy you as an Armenian speaker because when you have a, a different language as your native tongue, you, you know, languages form the way we think. They give us categories to think in. And so you have different categories than a native English speaker does. And then when you learn English, you know, you're able to compare them together and to yeah. see the limitations of each one. And um, any really, you know, any, any language and especially language really different <laughs> from the one you already know is really helpful in that way. Um, yeah. I've, I, I've experienced a little of that, you know, learning Greek to the extent that I have, but um, I've just, Skim the surface, and so many more other languages I think could take even deeper into that yeah. kind of understanding.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I said before, it's all about knowing there's so much out there that's still to be, still to be learned. And uh, you, I really, you do, really do come across as some as an eternal student. And that's the way we are the beneficiaries yeah. of your work. So, yeah. Dr. Yeah, Bradshaw, I- uh, Uh, Thank you so much for for the session we have done so far. We could still talk along for a couple more hours, I know for sure. And God willing, we'll see each other in uh, in the future again. If there's something that the Lord has put on my heart, uh, you will hear from me 100%. For those who don't know, tomorrow, like today, it's the 5th of January. Tomorrow is the Orthodox Christmas, the celebration of the birth of the second person of the Trinity. For we all know. For everybody, Merry Christmas, Orthodox Christmas doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. you get my point. Uh, Dr. Bradshaw, thank you very much. It has been oh, thank uh, you. It has okay. been a pleasure. God bless everyone, okay. and thank you. Okay.